exposed with the rain coming down from the cloud and the fire that falls from heaven. But our tragedy finds where our ignorance hides. We all wind up here together. Yeah, bodies are tied and our souls, they're blind bones broken by the weather. Got a lot of bad days still coming our way, but it's But he looks down low, he looks down low, yes our Lord sits up 
There's a groaning and aching in my bones. There's a longing in my heart to find a home. And I am traveling through a wilderness so Nothing seems to satisfy, but I'm heading home. I'm heading home. And my eyes are growing tired as I look up to the sky. Reflecting off the trees as it sets into the night. And in a world now dressed in darkness, one that never seems to rest. You're making beauty here amidst the broken.
cold and callous ground is crying out to be made new. And though I'm homesick, you remind me we still have work to do. Good morning. Thank you all for joining us for worship today. And uh, thank you for joining us online as well for those who are watching via live stream. My name is Mark, and I'm going to begin our service this morning with a call to worship from Acts chapter 4. So listen to these words. And this is uh, Peter and John before the Jewish leaders after healing a crippled man. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priest's family. And when they had set in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done for a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that we can find salvation in Jesus, that there is truly no other name by which we can be saved. And so we lift up the name of Jesus in praise, glory, and adoration this morning. Refresh our hearts, and may we be shaped into the likeness of Christ as we gather together to sing and to hear your word preached. God, would you be with us this morning? And through your Holy Spirit, make your presence known to us and bless our, our meeting together today. 
And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together this morning, and we're going to sing Lift High the Name of Jesus.
are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Good morning. Welcome to City Church. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community, walking with God in our city. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Um, I also think it's raining pretty hard. It was crazy when I drove in earlier this morning, so thank you for navigating the weather and being here. A lot of our, our staff is actually away getting some much-needed rest. A lot of our congregation is away getting some much-needed rest. Um, if you're in town and you're a parent of young children, you're probably not getting a lot of rest. You know how we, you know how we celebrate Fourth of July now. If you have young kids, you anxiously stay up at night waiting to see if the neighbors across the street who are firing mortars um, are going to wake up all your kids. So that's how we were celebrating Fourth of July last night. It wasn't even Fourth of July. It was just July third. Tonight is July fourth, and so we'll see um, what goes down. We would love to connect with you, get to know you a little bit better. There's a few ways you can do this. First of all, please uh, feel free to approach me. Come chat with me after the service. I will be here. I want to talk to you. I want to get to know you, um, meet you personally. Secondly, we have connection cards, and you can fill these out one of two ways. One, you can go online. You can go to citychurchgmv.com connection. Uh, you can fill it out on your phone or however you want to do that. Or we put connection cards in your bulletin. So when you get in, you get a bulletin, you get a physical connection card, fill that out, and then you can put that right in the seat pocket in front of you whenever you do it, and we will collect those. We will for sure pray for you each week. Seriously, on Tuesdays, either Mondays or Tuesdays during our staff meeting, 
we take a look at all those prayer requests, and we do pray for you, um, and we take that really seriously. So I hope that you will consider at least putting a prayer request on there. You can put your name. You can make it anonymous. Great resource for you to also ask questions about our church, who we are, what we're doing in downtown Gainesville. So I commend that to you. We have extra bulletins on the hospitality table. Uh, we also have a monthly bulletin on the hospitality table. So we have a small bulletin that we give you each week. We also have a much bigger one that's out monthly that has even more information about what's happening in life of our church. So I would encourage you to check that out. We worship a generous God, and part of our responsive worship as the people of God is giving generously. You can give online, citychurchgmv.com slash give, or you have the brown box in the back of the sanctuary. Our community groups, which, which are really the relational backbone of our church family, uh, they are small groups of people who meet regularly to uh, talk about applying what we're preaching through on Sunday mornings and uh, to pray together and to eat together and to serve our city together all of that, they are about, those groups are about to resume. They were just on a four or five week break, so our leaders and hosts could rest, but they're resuming kind of in a staggered start. Some groups are beginning next week. They're resuming next week, um, Sunday night, and then on following weekday evenings. Some groups will be starting later in the month or in early August. We would love to get you connected to a group. Uh, indicate something on your connection card. Talk to me after the service. Even if your group isn't starting next week, we can get you connected to leaders and hosts so that when it does start, you'll be ready to go and you can get to know them. So, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, women of City Church, you are having a, I guess we're calling it a mixer. We're calling it a mixer. Um, in the next couple of weeks, and I believe the final date for that is July the 16th, I want to say. Ooh. Yes, July 16th, 6 to 9 o'clock. You see the address there up on the slide. That's for um, any and all City Church women and invited guests to really get together and reconnect after a year of a lot of separation, isolation. Uh, so I would encourage you to participate in that if you happen to be in town. We are doing uh, child dedications next Sunday. Uh, some people are already um, signed up for this. It'll be only during our 9 a.m. service. If you're just now hearing about this and you want to participate in child dedications, I would encourage you to let me know. Put something on your connection card. It's not too late. Uh, kids, if you want to be dedicated, let your, let your parents know, <laughs> and then they'll talk to us about it. Uh, but seriously, families, if you haven't uh, participated this in the past with your children. This is an opportunity to basically to say before the congregation to pledge uh, to raise your children up in the Lord and also for the congregation to join you, by the way, in making that pledge because we see that the whole congregation is joining you as parents and actually raising your children up in Christ Jesus. I'm going to do a pastoral prayer uh, in just a moment. Um, we do different kind of special elements throughout the month. Sometimes we spotlight missions or community engagement. Uh, we've done that the past couple of weeks, and once a month we also do an extended pastoral prayer. Um, so after I read our scripture passage, I will be uh, praying for two things. Uh, number one, you'll hear me pray in light of everything that's going on in Miami uh, with the building collapse. And then number two, um, just so you know, even though we are here inside and, and COVID is less of an issue than it was you know, a year ago, it's still a major issue in other parts of the world, including in Venezuela uh, we've been, we partner with churches in Venezuela. Our denomination has a rather large presence in Venezuela. I've given you updates. We have about 100 or so pastors serving in Venezuela. COVID has hit them very hard. And now, as of this past week, we've now lost 12 of our 100 pastors in Venezuela to COVID. Um, and many more of them are, are very ill. So I'll be praying for their families, especially the widows. We sent money um, to some organizations that are ministering in Venezuela, particularly to help provide uh, stipends to the widows who are trying to make ends meet and provide food for their families, just, as, just so you know. So let me read our scripture passage, and then I will be praying for that text. I've been praying 
for those two needs. Our passage this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 5. We're in a series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're done with Ezra, and we're a few weeks in now into the book of Nehemiah. In your bulletin, it says Nehemiah, uh, chapters 5 and 6, but I'm actually only going to read and preach through Nehemiah 5 today. So huge surprise. I think you can manage that. Uh, We'll be looking at chapter 6 next week. Nehemiah chapter 5. The passage should be up here on the screen as I read it. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull that out as well. And actually, I think this is a very timely text, given that it is 4th of July, and, and I think people are wrestling uh, with how to, how to celebrate that more than ever, and you'll see thematically why I think this text is going to be helpful in a few moments. Nehemiah chapter 5. I'll read the whole thing uh, for you, and then we'll pray. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain, that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children, are as their children, yet you are, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I, this being Nehemiah, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and those, those words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over them. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good 
O my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare to approach this text, may you give us a great working of the Holy Spirit so that we can take this text. Again, in the context, it's, it's foreign to most of us. We're not very familiar with a lot of what was going on uh, in the days of Nehemiah. So would you take this text? I pray that we would unpack it uh, wisely and accurately and use it for transformational purposes in our lives. May we have humble hearts to receive it. And Father, before we preach this word, we remember two grievous sayings that we want to lift up to you um, in, in urgent petition. Number one, Lord, we cry out in sorrow and lament over the unfathomable tragedy that is unfolding um, in the Miami area. Lord, there is so much loss and grieving, so much death, so much disappointment, um, a lack of understanding about how any of this could happen. Frustration even on the part of people that are doing the search and rescue as they've had many difficulties actually getting to the people who are in need. Father, there are a lot of people right now who are walking around without um, dads and moms and kids and grandparents. Father, would you minister to them as they experience these grievous losses? Would you raise up the Church of Jesus Christ in the Miami area to minister to them in profound ways, spiritually, physically, and emotionally? I know that some churches have been doing exactly that. We continue to pray for miraculous rescues. It seems incomprehensible to us that there could be any more rescues at this point, but we know that you've done far greater things than that. And so we continue to ask you um, for reprieve and for rescue. And we do ask, Lord, for um, that this would be a, a helpful moment in a sense if there's any other structures locally or, or even nationwide that would be subject to certain um, conditions that this building has experienced, that this could be a catalytic moment um, to save us from future experiences in the future. We also pray, Father, for the widows in particular of the pastors that have passed away in the past couple of months in Venezuela. There are, there are many families right now, not just the families of these pastors, but families of people in the congregations that are hurting, um, that especially now, all of these factors are coming together to make it very difficult to put food on the table just to, to meet basic needs. And so I do pray for miraculous provision, pray that you would use our church and other churches and our denomination and beyond to minister financially. And Father, give us opportunities not only to minister financially, but to be some sort of spiritual and emotional support to the leaders that continue to pastor um, in light of these absences and to the families, especially the widows and their children who are hurting um, and confused and devastated. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who understands things better than we do and knows all things. Um, what would we do without that kind of God? We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have never had the opportunity to make your way to the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, good for you. And I hope that is the case for the very rest of your life. Um, if you've not been there before, you may not have heard the little joke that uh, DFW stands for Delayed for Weather. And um, that's exactly what I experienced just a few days ago, um, a, a solid five-hour weather delay 
Um, at Dallas, we were supposed to leave at 7 and some change p.m. We ended up leaving at 12, 14 a.m., which I didn't even know was possible, didn't know it was legal. We landed around 3.30, again, completely beyond my understanding. Uh, let me tell you about what kind of goes on if you haven't experienced this before. The first hour or so, it's just kind of a bummer. Everyone's like, ah, man, that's inconvenient, but you kind of move on. Hour two, things start to change a little bit, you know, and of course, it's not, you don't give you the five-hour thing all at once. It, they just kind of tick it back by an hour. They drag it out. Uh, hour two, it, it gets, you know, it's, it's more than a minor inconvenience at that point. People are starting to get a little bit frustrated. Uh, the, the third hour I call kind of the heroic hour, where everybody sort of starts rallying together, you know? You're, you're all gathered around the agent, poor agent, my gosh, and trying to understand what's going on and what the ramifications are going to be. But there's kind of this heroic, like, you know, we're in this together. Yes! You rally a little bit emotionally. Like, listen, this is really difficult, but at least we're together. Hours four and five, less heroic. People are still saying, you know, we're in this together, but you can see people walking quietly down the hallway on their cell phone, and they're saying, like, oh, there's one room left at that hotel. I'll take it. You know, there's one, there's one seat left on this other flight. I'll take it. So you say you're in it together, but really people are starting to get a little selfish. They're, they're starting to look out for themselves. I mentioned this little circumstance for two reasons. Number one, it is a somewhat shameful appeal for sympathy. That's what I want. Number two, it actually, this whole circumstance actually helps us approach what we might call the atmosphere of Nehemiah chapter 5. And the our series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've been journeying with the Israelite remnant as they've returned from Babylonian exile to Jerusalem in waves under a series of key leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and of course now Nehemiah. But even, they, even though they were going home to Jerusalem, the transition has been profoundly difficult. They've endured relentless opposition from their neighbors. They endured various delays, speaking of delays, at the airport. They've endured all kinds of delays. They've dealt with collective forgetfulness about the law of God. That's one of the reasons why Ezra had to go back in the first place. And their building project, especially the temple rebuild and now the wall rebuild, have been rather fraught. They're coming along but it has not been smooth. So the bottom line here, it's good to be home. It's good to be going home, but the circumstances have been harder than anyone anticipated. This morning, in Nehemiah chapter 5, we encounter one of the most common fruits, or we might say bad fruits, of difficult circumstances. Selfishness. Selfishness. We alluded to this connection last week, but we're really spotlighting it this week especially the severe cases of selfishness that lead to oppression. The severe cases of selfishness that end up leading to oppression. Thankfully, none of what I personally saw in Dallas was genuinely oppressive, selfish, yes, but calling it oppressive trivializes the word, which, by the way, we are defining this morning as an unjust Misuse of power, control, and authority. And by unjust, we basically mean not giving people their, their due as image bearers of God. So, no oppression, at least that I saw, in the Dallas airport. However, 
I probably don't need to tell you that this is a very timely passage given the rather energetic national conversation we've been having about oppression, most of it focused on race, gender, and sexuality. So the time is right to think about uh, oppression in a biblical sense, particularly the genesis of oppression, as well as the alternative to oppression, which I certainly hope all of us would prefer. And we certainly will not exhaust either one of those topics. There's no way we can do that. But what we can do is we can follow this text and make some applications that I think will be simultaneously convicting, but also very hopeful. Two reflections this morning as we make our way through Nehemiah chapter 5. Number one, the anatomy of, of an oppressive heart. And then number two, and, and far more hopefully, the anatomy of a generous heart. Number one, the anatomy of an oppressive heart. And then number two, the anatomy of a generous heart. So let's forge ahead with that first reflection, the anatomy of an oppressive heart. In Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4, we saw that Nehemiah, this guy Nehemiah, rallied a comprehensive effort among the returned exiles to rebuild the Jerusalem wall that was effectively destroyed when the city was under siege at the hands of the Babylonians. This wall was a very important line of defense against Israel's enemies, thus the fervor from Nehemiah to get permission from the pagan Persian king, Artaxerxes, to make the rebuild a reality. Last week, we encountered one very major roadblock, opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, and eventually Geshem, who I've been calling kind of the, the three musketeers here, and they most likely represented Jerusalem's neighbors to the northeast and the northwest, in the southeast, they completely opposed the rebuild. They actively opposed the rebuild because they really didn't love the idea of Jerusalem becoming a more formidable presence in the region. They started with these insults that were kind of pathetic, but then it eventually became a lot worse, death threats and the like. But now we learn about another roadblock along the way as they try to rebuild this wall. Now we learn about another roadblock, economic viability. It turns out that when you put everything on hold to help build a wall, you do so at the expense of your job, of your vocation, which makes it very hard to put food on the table and feed your family. So on one hand, this is a very selfless act, rebuilding this wall. But on the other hand, it does create some economic problems for your family. You're not working anymore. You're not plowing the fields, et cetera, et cetera. And so food resources can become very scarce. You can get away with this maybe temporarily, but as time goes on, as the rebuild project drags on, things get pretty real. And eventually things got real enough for these families that they, and this is most likely the wives of those doing the building, they desperately said to one another, and you can see this in verse 2, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. You hear the desperation? It's not get grain so we can kind of keep going. It's, we're at the point where we need to get grain so that we can stay alive. And that desperation might sound rather sudden to us, but it's understandable, especially when we consider that a famine exacerbated the work hiatus. Look at verse 3. 
We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So you kind of have a work hiatus compounded now by a famine. What do we hope to see from the people of God in the midst of such difficult circumstances? We hope to see sacrificial interest in the well-being of other people. But some people acted very selfishly. Thus, the genuinely tragic outcry we learn about in verse 1 involving Jewish people making allegations against their fellow Jewish brothers. And we didn't see that familial thing coming, did we? Given the narrative flow of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we'd anticipate allegations against Israel's enemies, but this is an outcry from Jews against fellow Jews. Why? Because Jews with power and Jews with financial means were trying to navigate these very dicey economic circumstances by taking advantage of Jews with fewer means. Look again at verse 3. Jewish nobles and officials, they created this opportunity for people to mortgage their land, the idea being that people in financial trouble could receive compensation based on the value of their property and eventually pay that loan back plus interest. And in the meantime, they would take that compensation and they would use it to make ends meet, they would use it to buy grain, so on and so forth. And by the way, making ends meet didn't just involve buying food. It involved that, but it also involved, as you can see in verse 4, coming up with enough money to pay the very unjustly heavy taxes levied on them by the Persian king. Remember that the Israelites, even though they were home in Jerusalem, they were still under the authority of the Persians. So get this. Instead of advocating for tax relief on behalf of their fellow Jews, the nobles and the officials saw an opportunity to lend money and to earn interest, to take advantage, basically, of people who are in dire straits. And then look at verse 5. When the mortgaging option was financially insufficient, when it didn't get the job done, some Jews had to force their sons and their daughters into debt slavery in order to pay back their creditors. Now we can understand the outcry. The nobles and the officials, they were in a position to make things better for the people that they had control and influence over. But instead of doing so, they were making a bad situation worse by protecting their own interests. They weren't just neglecting those with fewer means, they were actually exploiting them. Did the difficult circumstances cause this oppression? Isn't that an interesting question? Did it make the nobles oppressive? Not really. Difficult circumstances aren't so much causers, they're revealers. They're revealers. They actually give us perhaps the best earthly look at the condition of our hearts by showing us the primary object of our affection. When the very difficult seasons come, what will we try to protect? Where will we direct our gazes? You know, anyone can tweet about their love for Jesus during seasons of peace and plenty. Not that hard. It's another matter entirely to write those same tweets when your world seems to be coming undone. 
And when things began to get dicey, you see what the nobles protected. They protected their economic well-being and whatever good relations they might have enjoyed with the Persian government. That's what they protected. That's what they looked after. Does this mean that these nobles and officials were, were heathen idolaters who had forsaken all concern for the Lord and for his people? No. But there was still enough idolatry swirling around their hearts to set the table for oppression. There was still enough love of, of something other than God to fan the flames of injustice. And that connection between idolatry and injustice is outrageously important and probably under-discussed. A broken vertical relationship with God, such as by worshiping someone or something other than God, will result in broken horizontal relationships with other people. The vertical brokenness will lead to broken horizontal relationships. And it will do so, A, because you are pursuing your chief love at the expense of other people, or B, because you are making that person or those people your functional God, which will cause its own kind of smothering harm. So the oppressive heart is ultimately an idolatrous heart. And difficult circumstances are one of the most powerful revealers of such idolatry. And notice that Nehemiah's response to the outcry solidifies these connections. It solidifies everything we're saying. Look at verses 6 through 9. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against him and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? This is a very telling takedown from Nehemiah. The nobles were acting oppressively in part because they were forgetting or neglecting the law of Moses, which expressly prohibited Jews from exacting interest from each other when people were borrowing out of need. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Of course, this was to protect economic exploitation. And they were acting oppressively because they were, and you see this in verse 9, this is the big one, they were acting oppressively because they were not walking in the fear of our God. That was the big problem. So their oppressiveness was fundamentally a moral problem in which something other than God had captured their fear, had captured their reverent awe. And accordingly, they were neglecting God's law and they were causing an assortment of injustices. Church, my read on this text and I'll get to this more later, my read on this text is that the nobles, they didn't fully grasp the severity of their injustices until Nehemiah said something. Charging interest on a loan is kind of a universal practice that doesn't feel very outlandish when you're doing it. It seems completely fine, and there are legitimate opportunities for loans, and the law would have allowed for that. 
Debt slavery was likewise very common in their day and not expressly forbidden in the Mosaic law, although mistreating those in this position certainly was. I don't think these nobles and these officials really understood the scope of their oppressive actions. I don't think they were waking up in the morning and thinking to themselves, let's go be oppressive, let's oppress some people. Which is quite unsettling, isn't it? But this is a very common accomplishment in difficult seasons because difficulties make it very easy to justify your behaviors. Plus, and here's the other thing, there will always be people you can favorably compare yourself to. There will always be people you can favorably compare yourself to. There will always be people acting far more oppressively than you are. You can always turn on the news and see if you're, oh, okay, those are the oppressive people over there. So if we want to be honest about the possibility that we might be living oppressively or unjustly, we can't just look at our behaviors. We have to look at our hearts. And then we have to follow the cord. We have to follow the line. We have to assume that our idolatry, when we detect it, when we detect that we're worshiping someone or something above and beyond God, we have to assume that it's connected to oppression somewhere, somehow, big or small. And remember, even if we're living justly in one area, it doesn't mean we can't be towing the line in other areas. All of this argues, all of this argues for the need for us to do very regular heart diagnostics and then follow the cord, especially in difficult circumstances that, that squeeze us spiritually, physically, and emotionally. When things get hard, and they have been hard this past year and a half, we should assume, we should assume that hidden idolatries are going to come out of their cave. We should expect selfishness to rear its head. So we need regular heart diagnostics, and we need to be receptive when people come to us with very difficult truths, just like Nehemiah did with these nobles. We will not see everything on our own. We will need hope. We, we will need help. We all have blind spots. Now, what's the alternative to living oppressively, to living in such a selfish way that it leads to oppression? What's the alternative? What's the goal? It's far more than not being oppressive. <laughs> Too often at this point, the conversation gets pretty negative. You know, don't be oppressive. Be better. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, what is, what is that exactly? What does that look like? And how do we get there? And it brings us, I think, very powerfully to our second reflection, the anatomy of a generous heart. Of a generous heart. You might have noticed that Nehemiah's call out here in verses 6 through 9 was very effective. The nobles and the officials were silent and could not find a word to say, verse 8, which suggests a certain level of conviction. There was no arguing with the points that Nehemiah was making. They were landing. Fascinatingly, Nehemiah appears to have woken himself up as well. Even though he wasn't acting as selfishly 
as the nobles, we can see that in verse 10, he, he realized his own loan practices didn't pass muster either. So he, he actually implicated himself in this call out, and in humility said, let us abandon this exacting of interest. There's a heart softness there, church, that's very countercultural. He was speaking prophetically, but he was simultaneously examining his own heart and his own practices. Those things can go together. Prophetic speaking and heart examination, I'm just not sure how often they do go together in our day. Ultimately, conviction led to this corporate pledge on the part of the nobles to act in keeping with the to-do list Nehemiah spelled out for them in verses 11 and 12 to make things right. And it wasn't just, by the way, paying the interest back. It was, it was giving assets back. It was, it was like this functional year of jubilee. Surely their motivation was enhanced by Nehemiah's rather dramatic speech act performance that you can find in verse 13 that, that pronounced God's judgment, essentially a curse, on those who failed to keep their pledge. That'll motivate you. That'll light a fire. But their willingness to accept Nehemiah's terms, which, again, involved doing more than just simply returning interest, that indicates heart change and repentance. As does the way we see them praising the Lord in verse 13 and then carrying out their pledge. Raise your hand if your standard response to someone bringing you a hard word entails immediately taking their advice, and then having a praise and worship session in your living room. It's not our standard response, because it's not a human response, because this is a miraculous kind of thing that only happens when God intervenes in our lives and gives us a supernatural heart softness and humility. And now we're getting closer to understanding the anatomy of a generous heart, which we're saying is the opposite of a selfish and oppressive heart. The journey from oppressiveness to generosity, it begins with conviction concerning our idolatry and then humble repentance of that idolatry, which means worshipfully turning away from that idolatry and toward God. And as we've just seen, you will know true repentance when you see it, because true repentance manifests itself in action every single time. But not just any action. It manifests itself in sacrificially generous action. Rhythms of generosity that influence everything that we say and do. All of it. Why such generosity? Because part of Christian worship and church, this is so important. Part of walking in the fear of our God means beholding the generosity of God. Part of Christian worship, maybe the pinnacle of Christian worship, part of walking in the fear of our God means beholding the generosity of God. And you know, Nehemiah and the Israelites had plenty of generosity to consider. Think about this. They had they saw the generosity of God in, in making a covenant with the Israelites, even though they did nothing to deserve this covenant. 
the generosity of God in rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, the generosity of God in giving them the law. By the way, do you think about God's regulations like that? Do you see them as being generous? They are. And of course, the generosity of God in, in giving them the promised land and then now, as we're seeing, eventually bringing them back out of exile. Nehemiah and the Israelites had a lot of generosity to consider. And listen, we can and we should consider that generosity as well. Even though we're not in that immediate context, we should still be blown away by what we see in redemptive history. But of course, we now know about the pinnacle of God's generosity. We know about the pinnacle of God's generosity. Check this language out. The Father literally gave. You see that giving language, that generosity language? The Father literally gave his own son, Jesus. John 3.16. That whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, should not perish, that is, on account of their sin, but have eternal life. The Son of God willingly lived and died and rose again to free us from slavery to sin, that those who believe in him might live with God and the eternal promised land. That's generosity right there. If that's not generosity, nothing else is. And when we get that, you know, when, when we see that, then we live generously as well. We can't help ourselves. It just happens. We agree with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 that it, it's a joy to pour ourselves out for the well-being of others, even if it costs us everything. That's what happens when we behold and get the generosity of God in Christ Jesus. That's the anatomy of a generous heart. Isn't this kind of gospel generosity far more interesting than simply not being oppressive or or not sinning. It certainly is, and it's only fueled by the generosity of God. Otherwise, you know, doing better will be limited mainly to making some minor changes to avoid public shame or to deal with some lingering feelings of guilt. It won't get you to generosity. Church, what might this kind of extravagant generosity look like in our lives individually and corporately in the life of this church? Here's an example from Nehemiah that gets us thinking. Look at this. This is, this is remarkable. From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. And by the way, now I'm in verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So here's what Nehemiah didn't do. You see what he didn't do? 
even though he evidently became the governor of Judea for 12 years, under the authority still of the Persians, he didn't take the food allowance that he was entitled to because it would have functionally meant an additional tax upon the already very burdened people. Rulers that went before Nehemiah certainly did this. They certainly took the food allowance, but Nehemiah is saying, I did no such thing. Here's what he did do instead. And this will blow our socks off if we understand this rightly. Verse 16, time generosity. He kept working on the wall, something he could have definitely taken a pass on given his position as a governor. Think about the governor. Governor don't have to work on the wall anymore. He can do what he wants. But he kept working. He kept working with the common man, so to speak. And in verses 17 and 18, financial generosity. He regularly hosted, imagine this, he regularly hosted 150, basically of his staff, at his dinner table, plus diplomats from other nations that came to visit. 150 staff, plus diplomats, on the regular. That was like the nightly dinner. And since he wasn't taking the food allowance, he paid for this on his own dime. A meal so expensive that it's almost beyond comprehension. Every single day, an ox, an ox. You don't even have to know about agriculture in that day to know that an ox was very expensive. If you were slaughtering an ox every day, that was going to put you out a little bit. Along with six choice sheep and birds. And every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Apparently, Nehemiah had a lot, you can see this, of personal wealth. And he used it generously in a way that blessed many people. And it didn't burden the people under his rule. Why? Verse 15. Because of the fear of God, which cultivated compassion and generosity. A very sincere compassion that we find expressed in the prayer in verse 19. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for the people. We see this prayer actually later in Nehemiah as well. We'll get to it in a few more weeks, a second time. And here's the thing. It's actually not braggadocious. It sounds kind of like, oh, this is what I did. I'm so great. It's not. He's simply indicating his desire to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. He's saying, I've done this in all sincerity. Oh, my God, I hope this is pleasing in your sight. Church, isn't this compelling? I'm saying, isn't this so compelling? Isn't there something compelling about expending yourself and extending yourself for the well-being of other people? This, this is a lifestyle that has texture and meaning. Way more than the very self-oriented, you know, you do you, speak your truth lifestyle that quite frankly leads to selfishness and in the worst cases, oppression and also the byproducts of loneliness, loneliness and depression. One of the things about pursuing your own interests is it makes you profoundly depressed and lonely, ultimately. <laughs> Think about, for example, Chicken Soup for the Soul. You guys remember this? It's a collection of heartwarming stories. It became an industry. There's you know, chicken soup for everybody now, for animals, I think, I'm pretty sure, parakeets. It was really big in the 90s. I'm not sure how big it is anymore. You, you, nowadays, you go to one of those library, you know, used book sales, and like every other book is chicken soup for the soul. So I'm not sure that it's doing particularly well right now. 
But it's this collection of heartwarming stories. And here's the thing. The stories aren't about people who are self-actualizing and, and radically focusing on personal fulfillment. You know what the stories are about? They're stories about radical other focus and generosity because those stories are heartwarming and captivating. They just are. And the other kinds of stories aren't. No one would buy that book. Here's a story about people looking after themselves. Who cares? It's not interesting. It's not compelling. Other <laughs> focused living is fascinating. It's compelling. And if we want to live this way, if we want to live this way, we've already seen the list of ingredients. And it's not really about what you have or what you don't have. That's important right now. Wealthy people can be generous, as can people with very basic means. Here's what you'll need if you want to live like this, in this very compelling way. Number one, you'll need reverent awe of the Lord in light of his generosity to undeserving people. And number two, you're going to need moral authority, such as the core commandments to love God and our neighbor, because that moral authority ultimately guides and constrains our behavior and our actions. And guess what? This reverent fear of the Lord and this moral authority, those are exactly the resources that we find in Christianity. Those are exactly the resources we find in Christianity. And you might object, rightfully so, and say, listen, but I, I've seen professing Christians live in, in very selfish, ungenerous ways. We've all seen that. But that's not true Christianity, as it turns out. That doesn't suggest that they're walking in the fear of God. And frankly, it reminds us of Nehemiah's prophetic speech act of doom that we saw back in verse 13. It's very scary to profess to know God and then live in a way that suggests you don't know him. Two questions as we close. Two questions as we close. Number one, how might you remember and encounter God's generosity this week, this month? How will you remember and encounter the generosity of God? You know about it intellectually, but how will you remember it and encounter it this coming week and this month? Because again, if we're primarily focused on just reforming our behaviors, we won't get very far. But if we are focused on the generosity of God, that will get us somewhere. That's the kind of miraculous remembering a movement that can take us from oppression to generosity. How you make space for that, because it does require space and margin. Number two, once you encounter the generosity of God and, and it moves you, what will your generosity look like in practice? What will it look like functionally? What will this mean for your time and your money and your hospitality? What will this mean for our church culture? What does it mean to be a generous church? I can tell you this, this, this pursuit of radical generosity. It will often, often be uncomfortable and tiring, especially in seasons when life is already difficult and exhausting. It will mean spending time with people who aren't like you. It will mean rethinking, and, and frankly, probably limiting, the way we spend resources on leisure. But here's the thing. It will be sweet. It will be sweeter than you know. It will be beautiful. It will be compelling. It will be rich. It will undermine injustice. And it will be a tremendous corporate witness to generosity and compassion of God. And one more thing as we close.
Generosity tends to be a contagious kind of thing. So if you're thinking to yourself, I want to be a part of that. I want, I want our culture to look like that. I don't know if I see it around me, you know, in my family life, my church life. Start being generous personally and watch what happens. It is remarkable how contagious generosity can be and is when people really get moving. Amen. Every week at City Church, we gather to celebrate the Lord's table together. Which, by the way, is actually a celebration of the generosity of God. It's a celebration of the generosity of God in giving his own son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again to set us free from slavery to sin. We might leave our idolatry in the past, turn toward God, and one day live in the promised land of God for eternity, to be, ex- to be removed from the exile of this world and live forever in a land where there will be no, it will be legitimately flowing with milk and honey. No more mourning, no more sin, no more pain. So I encourage you to be moved, to, to consider specifically the generosity of God as you participate in this meal this morning. If you're a father of Jesus, consider the generosity of God in giving his son Jesus, broken and shed, on your behalf. And if you're here and you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. Instead of taking this meal, uh, which you're not sure that you would say that you would believe in at this time, uh, we would encourage you to focus on this generosity we've been talking about. Just meditate on it. Consider it. And see what the Lord will do in your heart. And I would love to have conversations with you about this, what it means to follow Jesus, why I think it's compelling uh, to walk with him. And I've mentioned this before. Later on, probably late July, early August, we're going to start Uh, doing Q&As after our services um, so you can actually have a more intentional dialogue with whoever's been preaching that morning. Hopefully that will be helpful for you. Our desire at City Church is not to just speak things at you, but it's actually to have a conversation. I'm going to set the table for communion, then after I do so, uh, you will find a deacon or an elder on either side of this table. Um, Once I set the table and pray, you're invited to come up and take the communion elements. Right now, what it looks like is each deacon or elder will be holding a basket and they'll have prepackaged communion elements in them, and they'll just drop them in your hand. And when you receive them and return to your seat, you can eat and drink, or you can stand over here, kneel, whatever you do. And then there will be some music playing, and eventually we'll continue a uh, corporate scene. But that's how it will work after I set the table. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples. And during the meal, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this whenever you eat of it, in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup. And as he poured it, he said, this cup is a new covenant, my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Because he is coming again, because he rose again, as we turn to certain. That is our sure and living hope that the people of God... That's what it's all about, and that equips us to live generously in the meantime. To the extent that you believe that will be the extent to which you will pour out yourself for the benefit of others. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for, I say this, like broken record, but again, timeliness of this meal, it, it gives us a vivid picture of what we've just been preaching about. May it nourish us. May it, may it really move us. 
in transformative ways. We don't eat just to remember, as important as that is, but we, we, we eat and drink in remembrance for the sake of change, and we believe that the Holy Spirit is really moving and acting upon us even now, and we pray for that in spades. And I also pray that you would help us uh, be honest about our sin. Your, may your Spirit work to convict us so that the sin that's lingering in our hearts, the idolatry that's swirling around, we might own that and repent of it. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we sing. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving
standing for a benediction. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. I want to make a comment before a benediction. I mean this seriously. Uh, Sometimes, especially after this past year, holiday weekends can remind you of what you don't have. Um, You're seeing all these other people travel and get their rest, and I understand that there will be people in our congregation who need the rest and don't know how they can get it, that they're exhausted. Uh, We tend to have single parents, particularly in our hearts and minds in seasons like this. Please tell our church if that describes you. If you're one of those people, you're looking at Facebook, you're looking at other people, you know, do their R&R on the lake, and you're saying, I'm exhausted, I don't know how I can get that, let us know. We want to help you get that kind of rest, especially after this past year and a half. So please, please, please be in communication with us so that we might even extend some of the generosity we've just been talking about. We'd love to be creative and think with you. Hear this benediction. I'm just going to read John 3, 16 and 17. I alluded to earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God. Everybody got a story to tell of circles, circles, round and round they go. At night if you're crying, feeling like you're going through hell, that's just circles, circles, round and round they go. He's a God of the circles. He's a God of the ups and downs. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new to the sun. He's the God in the trials. He's the God in the meltdowns. Ain't nothing new under the sun. Ain't nothing new to the sun. We all go through circles. Shining through, calling on my friends, asking what's the move. Feeling a little different, I'm on something new. Today, today. I ain't gonna let no clouds get in my way. The only road I'm walking is the one I pick. Catch me sitting in the sun, no type of shade. Today, today. 
This is the date that the Lord has made. And I ain't gonna let it slip away. I'm gonna be joyful. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm gonna be joyful. The feeling that you get when you get new kicks. Bell ringing on the last day of singing, yeah. High fiving everybody, but we out of here. Today, today. So fast, life comes and goes. Make it last, best slow your road. They don't take it as a choice, but you gotta know that today's the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. And my ankle let it slip away, nah. I'm gonna be joyful. Gonna be, I'm gonna be joyful. Today, I'm gonna be joyful. Yes, I am, yes, I am. I'm gonna be joyful. Today, today. I got the joy dropped down in my heart, down in my heart. Down to my, I got the joy, joy down to my heart, down to my heart, down to my, I got the J O Y, down to my heart, down to my heart, down to my, I got the joy, joy down to my heart, too dang, Nobody, I 